Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of Heavy Branches. I'm Jacob. And I'm Tanner. And we're excited to get into Luke chapter 21 with you. But before we do that, Tanner, tell us how your week's been. My week's been pretty good. You know, started off with uh, a good Lord's Day, uh, teaching Sunday school. We had a congregational meeting. Um, so that all went well. And then, you know, uh, worked through the week, got some homework done, um, had a good Wednesday night youth group. Um, yeah, all that went pretty good, and then, um, now I'm here. How was your week? Uh, my week's been pretty good. It's been, been a slow week, but got some fun plans for this weekend, so, uh, currently we are recording this, uh, Friday early afternoon, and it has snowed a lot here, yeah. uh, in Grant County where, where I live and where he's from, where we're currently recording right now. So it snowed a lot, but uh, despite that, I had already made plans to travel down to western Kentucky, about like a three-and-a-half-hour trip, uh, to go spend the weekend with our good friend Jacob Cabe, who, if you have listened to some of our previous episodes, you've probably heard of him and maybe even seen him on a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, so I'm preaching down there at a church this Sunday that is an hour drive from his house, but three-and-a-half from mine. And so I'm just going to stay with him this weekend. We're gonna He's going to take me squirrel hunting. Uh, I've hunt for turkey and deer and rabbit. I've never went squirrel hunting, so uh, he's going to show me how to squirrel hunt, and hopefully when we get some, we're going to eat them too, I think. So never eaten squirrel before, but I'm down to try it. Yeah, that, I would like to try it too at some point. But So going to be hanging out with him, doing some hunting and preaching this weekend. So excited for the weekend. Hopefully I don't slide off the road on my way down, but hey, it'll be all right. Yeah, that three-and-a-half-hour trip might need to be like a four- or a four-and-a-half-hour trip in this way. I think most of it will be on the highway, so I don't think it'll be too icy there. It's really just getting from my house to the highway and then getting off the highway to his house, however long that is. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm down in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> uh, uh, don't have too much on Mark Your Calendar this week, but if you would be interested in taking one of the weekend module classes for at Louisville Bible College... Um, you know, hop on their website or talk to one of us. I'm sure that we can get you the information. Um, it's just like a two day intensive class where you go down on a Friday typically, and you have, I think eight hours of class on Friday from one to nine. And then you get up at like eight, uh, Saturday morning. And then from eight thirty to five thirty, I think is typically the class time there. And, you know, you can audit that, so that means you don't have to do any homework, but you don't get any credits, or you can actually take it for credit and get a full two credits from the class, and you have six to eight weeks to turn in the homework for that. So if you're interested in something like that, you know, uh, just let a, one of us know or or look up the school. Or there, There's different ways to figure out what they're offering. And if you're far away from Louisville, there are a couple different options you can do. One is... All of the modules are also offered online through Zoom. Yeah. So you can take it right from your house if you have a dependable Wi-Fi connection. Um, but also, the school has different, a few different dorms you can stay in. So if you have to travel a bit of the way to get there, but you still wanted to be in person, you can stay at the school um, for, I think it's like $15 a night, which you'd only be staying for one night. So it's way cheaper than a hotel. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's hop in. We're... Uh, this week, picking up in Luke chapter 21, um, this, ver- this, uh, this chapter has 38 verses, and uh, the chapter title for this week is The End. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, fitting. And so, we'll see, I think Jacob's going to talk mostly about the end and what I mean by that, but let's hop in here to the first few v- few verses. I don't have a verse 1 this week, but I do have a verse 1 through 4 this week, so that's pretty close. Um, What I want you all, I know growing up, you all, especially those of you that um, were in Sunday school, you probably heard some kind of story told about this account where a bunch of the, the rich were, you know, bringing a bunch of of their their wealth and placing it uh, as an offering into the treasury. And then this woman comes in, and the only thing she has is, is 
in the story they would have said like two copper pennies, but they she has two copper coins and that's all she has. And she gives them both. And Jesus, what he says to this, picking up in verse 3, it says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they out for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So this is something that none of us, I think, fully grasp or it's hard for us to grasp sometimes. And that is that there's we need to have the willingness to give up needs because we trust God and his provision. We need to have the willingness to give up needs because we trust God and his provision. So the question that I would ask you, that I I need to ask myself more often, is are you willing to give everything? And, you know, it's the habit of Christians today um, to to just go to church one hour a week on Sunday morning, you know, maybe throw a bone in the offering plate, but then they've done their due diligence for the week and, you know, that is Christianity to them. But Christianity, though people view it this way, Christianity is not about going to church on Sunday. That is a major benefit and part of the Christian life, and it is a time of encouragement and growth, but that is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about loving God and loving others. Christianity is about serving Jesus. It's about giving everything to him in following his will. Um, I watched, I saw a clip the other day or maybe yesterday, this man was uh, teaching or preaching and he said, I get the question all the time, how do I follow God's will? And his answer, and his answer to that was to give up self-will. We have to give up our own will, the things we want, and sometimes even the things we need in pursuit of serving Jesus as our Lord. Um, and a comment that I wanted to add to that, <laughs> I I really want us to consider the fact that the modern-day fasting that a lot of people speak of, write about, I truly believe that there's an inadequacy of modern-day fasting. Um, And what I mean by modern-day fasting is the, I'm going to fast from social media for three weeks, or I'm going to fast from my phone for a day, or I'm going to fast from Netflix for a couple days or a month or this year or whatever. Fasting is about giving up something you need in order to to discipline yourself and to focus on God, to discipline yourself to focus on God, and to discipline yourself to trust Him. When you're not giving up something that you need, that does not help with that discipline, and it is not, it's not, pushing you to rely on God. Now, I'm not saying that giving up on social media for a time or forever is not a good thing. That probably is, honestly, a very beneficial thing. But that isn't fasting as we see it in a biblical sense. And it could even still be beneficial for your relationship with Christ. I mean, it could it could free up a lot of time for you to have more time in the word and to be in prayer if you're giving up social media or Netflix or or whatever it is. I think the point we're making here is that a key part of biblical fasting, the way we see it in the Bible, is people aren't giving up things they like to do in their free time 
to have more time for God. It's they're giving up their one of their biggest daily needs in food. And yeah. and there there's a, a difference there between giving up something you like to do and giving up something you have to have in order for your body to live. And and really when it comes down to it, it's about do we trust God and his provision or not? Um, and so I wanted, I wanted us to all consider that as we, as we looked over, um, verses one through four. Um, now as the, the next part, you know, Jesus is in the temple, um, and we get to verse seven and it says, they questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? Um, because Jesus is talking about the temple um, being torn down. And we get into this section of what really takes up most of the chapter. And I forgot to do this, but be sure you read the chapter. <laughs> be sure to read the chapter, you know, before and, and while we're going through and, this. And I'll add in uh, quickly, not just this chapter, but if you want to read a parallel account to it, Matthew chapter 24 is the parallel to Luke 21, and really Luke 21 is kind of like the, um, how do I want to say this, the condensed version of Matthew 24, so they record the same events that happened here, but Matthew does give a little bit more detail as to what Luke does, and and we'll talk about that a little bit later too. Yeah, so as we dive in here, um, the main thing we see is (laughs) Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Um, that's, that's the point that we're going to get into. Um, so many say that this foreshadows or is prophecy about today and about the second coming. Um, Jacob, why don't you share with us, you know, is this about the second coming or is this about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? (laughs) Well, uh, you've, you've asked me to settle one of the more controversial questions regarding I would say the New Testament um, don't I don't know of too many different areas of of the New Testament that is disagreed upon maybe more than than this here between whether it's talking about the second coming of Christ at the end of the world or if it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem my conviction and there's there's probably going to be people listening that won't agree with me uh, maybe you will by the time we're done going through this. <laughs> but um, my conviction is that Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that we see happen in 70 AD. And so I kind of want to split this up into three sections between verses 7 where we started. <clears throat> and it re- this section really kind of ends in verse 28. So I'll split this up three ways and we'll just kind of go through this and really see three different ways that helps me to settle on the fact that he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So I know typically we don't read big chunks of Luke, what we're going through. We kind of just talk about it, but I do want to read these three sections here that I have. That way um, everyone can follow along just because this is kind of a controversial uh, matter. Yeah. So I'll start by reading the first section, which is the largest uh, number of verses wise. So I'm going to read verse 7 to verse 19. And then we will we'll talk about it. It says, They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And, and again, they're asking for the sign and when this will happen about uh, the verse before says that where Jesus says, There will not be left one stone upon another there at the temple. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, See to it that you are not misled, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So that's not the end of the section, but I do want to make a quick comment before I continue on the rest of the section, because this is kind of a a pivotal part here in this first section we're going through. Jesus warns 
of before what what I'm contending is the destruction of Jerusalem, there's going to be some different signs, some different ways that his disciples, which is who he's speaking to, uh, that doesn't say that here in Luke, but if you go back to Matthew 24, we learn that Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And so he tells them, here are some things you can look for before this destruction happens. He tells them about false messiahs, about rumors of wars, earthquakes, plagues, and famines. And I'm not going to go into too much detail here because we're going to go into some, some greater detail at a few other points. But we can see all of these things if you look back at, at church history and just history in general. You can see that all of these things happen in this time before 70 AD. Um, but what's more important, we're going to continue on here in verse 12. I said this is a pivotal point. 70 AD is is the year that Jerusalem was destroyed, just to clarify. Right. Sorry, go ahead. That's okay. So the pivotal point here in this first section is at the beginning of verse 12. But before all these things, so everything that follows, Jesus is saying, before those false messiahs, before those rumors of wars, before those earthquakes, before all of these signs I've given you, something else is going to come first. So here's what Jesus says. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So before all of these signs happen that many people are looking for today for the second coming of Christ, the false messiahs and rumors of wars and all of that, Jesus says before that stuff happens, there's going to be this, this persecution happen. His disciples are going to be persecuted. They're going to uh, have to come before kings and governors for Christ's name's sake, and it's going to lead for an opportunity for their testimony. And if you've read the book of Acts, you're, you're probably already drawing the dots and connecting the dots before I even say this, but we see a lot of this is fulfilled in the book of Acts, where the disciples are, and just the Christians are persecuted, and they have to go in front of governing authorities, and they end up using it, using it as a way to share their testimony. I mean, we see the Apostle Paul do this all throughout the second half of the book of Acts. Now, that doesn't mean that every persecution of Christians is fulfilled in the book of Acts. Christians have been persecuted other times as well. But before we get to all of these signs that Jesus opened this section with, he says this section about persecution, which we see fulfilled in the book of Acts. So that's one reason why I would say that this is fulfilled at Jerusalem in 70 AD at that destruction, because we see some of this section here fulfilled in Acts. Uh, Second of the three sections here, we'll spend a little more time here. Um, I'm going to read verse 20 through 24. And Jesus actually specifically mentions Jerusalem here, so we'll preface with that. But he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now this next verse is key, so remember this. We'll spend time on this. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled under foot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So the verse I told you to remember and that's a little section, second section there was verse 21, where Jesus tells his disciples, those who are in Judea, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the city must leave. So let's just say Jesus is, is talking about the second coming here. 
which he's not, but let's just say that he is. Why would Jesus tell them to flee out of Judea into the mountains? I want you to think about that. If the world is ending, Jesus is coming to have the day of judgment. Everyone's getting, you know, you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. What, what is it, what's going to happen when they run to the mountains? Are they going to just be able to escape the judgment day somehow? I mean, that, that wouldn't make any sense. And some of you listening to this may be familiar with the name Josephus, who is someone that we get a lot of church history stuff from. Um, he, is a, he was Jewish, right? Yeah, Jewish writer. Yeah, he was a, a Jewish writer, Jewish historian that documented a lot of history um, during the time of Jesus and slightly after, too. And he actually records the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Josephus records that the Christians there that were in Jerusalem fled, actually fled to a town called Pella. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's P-E-L-L-A if you want to look it up. And it's located in the eastern foothills of the Judean Valley, uh, about 17 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. And so when you look back at history we see that when the destruction of Jerusalem happened, these, these Christians that were there understood that when that came, they, that's when they needed to flee. It wasn't the second coming when they needed to flee to the mountains. It was they understood it as when, G, when Jerusalem was being surrounded and was going to fall, that's when they needed to flee. Um, so that, that to me uh, is, is pretty convincing. Uh, when you just take a look at history and take a look at the context here, it wouldn't make any sense for them to want to uh, flee to the mountains if the world was ending and Jesus was coming back. I mean, that just that wouldn't accomplish any purpose at all. Um, and another thing I could I could bring up is Jesus says, "Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people." I mean, we don't believe that babies are going to hell. We believe that babies are innocent of sin so that they'll be in heaven. So if this is talking about the judgment day, the second coming, why would Jesus say woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies? The babies will be in heaven, and if the mothers are Christians, they'll be in heaven. Jesus is saying woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies because if the city that you live in is about to be taken over and destroyed by another army, that's not a good time to be pregnant or nursing a baby. Yeah, it's really hard to, uh, I mean, it, it's really hard to try to carry a young child, that, especially one that can't even walk yet, and try to escape a, a coming war or, <laughs> or something like that. So. so the last little section here, kind of my, my, so my first reason for saying that this is the destruction of Jerusalem is talking about what we saw fulfilled in the book of Acts that has to come before all of, those, all of those signs of earthquakes and false messiahs. Secondly, was due to this whole thing about fleeing to the mountains and about how that only makes sense if Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. The last little section here and the last kind of reason I believe this is about Jerusalem is, is found in verse 25 through 28, so I'll, I'll go ahead and read that. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So when we when you read that you're th- and you're just thinking about what the words of that of those verses say you probably hear some things that make you think second coming. Uh that's just, that's just the way that our 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 minds hear that talking about signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and especially the phrase the son of man coming in a cloud that's uh, that is one of the bigger phrases that gives off second coming vibes if you will. Um, and so we're going to talk about that uh, before we get to the coming on a cloud coming on a cloud part. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this verse twenty five 
talking about the signs and the sun and the moon and the stars, um, many people that would say this this whole passage is about the second coming of Christ would say that this is second coming language. And while we may understand it that way today, um, having more revelation than they did during this time because they only had the Old Testament, I want to take a look at how someone who only had the Old Testament would have understood this. And to do that, we're going to look at some different Old Testament prophecies. And now I'm not going to actually turn to these and read them, but I will tell you the reference. That way, if you want to keep looking into this, you can pause or go back in the podcast and then look these up on your own. But I don't want to spend 20 more minutes on this. So Joel, the prophet Joel, uses this kind of same judgmental language of the sun and the moon growing dark in Joel chapter 2, verse 10. And I guess I should clarify, when I say judgmental language, what I'm talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem here, this isn't just something that just happened. Um, this, was some, this was something that God used as a judgment against Jerusalem because of their rejection of him. And we, we, see, we saw God do that all throughout the Old Testament. And we see some of the, the language of the Old Testament prophets when they talk about nations being destroyed out of a judgment from God. They use this very same language that Jesus is using here about signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. So one example of that is in Joel 2.10. If you want to look that up, you can. Uh, another example is Ezekiel uses this same kind of language, talking about the destruction of Babylon. And if you want to look that up, uh, you can look at Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 through 12. Uh, another prophet that uses the same kind of language, talking about God's judgment and destruction upon a nation, is Isaiah. Uh, he speaks of the destruction of Babylon, uh, just like Ezekiel did, and also of the nation of Edom. Um, and you can read the, read about that in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, and Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. Um, so when, I, when, we, when we read Jesus here talk about signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and, and all of this stuff, that's the same exact kind of language, prophetic language, that is used in the Old Testament to describe God judgmentally destroying a nation because they rejected him. And that's exactly what we see happen in Jerusalem in 70 AD. The last point I want to spend some time on here is I told you we would spend some time on the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's another phrase in here that people read and they think, oh, that's got to be talking about the second coming. Well, I, w- I always like to say the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Absolutely. Um, that's why I've went back to the Old Testament to look at different prophecies in the Bible and to interpret this prophecy. That's why I went to the book of Acts to see where the first section of this was fulfilled. And that's why we're going to look at another time Jesus uses this phrase, the Son of Man coming in a cloud, to see what exactly is going on here. I am going to read this one. It's over in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 58 to 64. And we'll see Jesus use this phrase and, and we'll see what he means by it here. Um, Mark chapter 14, verse 58 to 64. Here's what, it's, here's what it says. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. And again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There's that phrase, coming in the, with the clouds of heaven. And then take note of how uh, the high priest responds to this in these last two verses. Verse 63 starts, Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What farther need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. 
So even though this phrase here, the son of man coming in a cloud or with the clouds, sounds like second coming language. That's not how it would have sounded to a Jew with only the Old Testament. Jesus uses that very same phrase here in Mark to, it's not talking about the Son of Man coming back to earth, um, but it's talking about him going to the Father to assume the, to assume the seat of judgment. And you see that there in verse 62. I'll read Jesus' response again. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, sitting at the right hand of God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest in Mark, he understood this. That's why I, t- that's why I told you to take note of his response. He, he tears his clothes and accused Jesus of blasphemy. Because who can go sit at the right hand of God other than the Son of God himself? So when we see the Son of Man coming in great power and on the clouds, that is in judgment over the city of Jerusalem because he is at the right hand of God and able to to execute that kind of power. Um, so one more thing I'll, I'll point out, and I told you we'd go back to Matthew 24 again, and I'm not going to go to the direct verse. Um, it's there at the end of Matthew 24. I can't remember where it is off the top of my head, but it's a pretty popular verse. You've probably heard of it where Jesus says, um, not even I know when the second coming is going to happen. Only God the Father knows. So if Jesus himself didn't know when the second coming was going to happen, my question to someone who is saying, well, Luke 21 and Matthew 24 are all about the second coming, my question to you would be, if Jesus himself at the end of Matthew 24 said he didn't know when it was going to happen, how could he give this whole prophecy and give all these signs to tell the disciples when it was going to happen. If he himself didn't know, he couldn't tell the disciples how to look out for it and know when it was coming. So that is is the final reason I'll give here today of why I believe this is the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and there are, there might be some of you listening to this and thinking, why in the world did we just spend all that time talking about If this prophecy is about the destruction of Jerusalem or about the second coming, what does it really matter? It does matter. Uh, There's this this false idea among a lot of churches and a lot of Christianity that if something doesn't have anything to do with salvation, then it just doesn't matter and we just don't need to care about it. And I know Tanner and I have talked about that in the past, and um, we don't like that idea. We believe that the Word of God is meant to be understood is meant to be understandable, even though it does take some hard work sometimes. And so we hope we've um, made a clear case to you about why, uh, biblically speaking, we know that this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. And the last thing um, that Jacob uh, hadn't mentioned yet, but we talked about it earlier, um, the last verse that you can point to that is just another confirmation that <laughs> that this is talking about the, direct, the the destruction of Jerusalem, is verse 32. It says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Right. Um, so Jesus is talking about, um, you know, the, the current generation, the people alive right now with him, they're, they would, they're not still alive. <laughs> they... <laughs> So Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen in their lifetime. Yeah, if this was about the second coming, well, we, we would have missed it somehow because <laughs> all these people are dead. And uh, Jesus says that, you know, this generation is not going to pass away until all these things take place. And some of the apostles we know, you know, died before the destruction of Jerusalem. But we also know um, that John, you know, he, he would have been writing some of his, you know, letters and stuff around 90 AD. Yeah. And when he's writing, you, you know, we can tell that he's, he has been part of the Jews that have been scattered because of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's writing to Christians in, in, you know, the Asia Minor area and such. So that's another, you know, very telling 
verse that that confirms that. So thank you for that that breakdown of all that. So now the question is, I'm sure a lot of you have this question: what how what from this can we apply to our lives today? And the first thing I'll take you to is kind of back to the middle of this, verse 19. Jesus is talking to them, and he says, By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And what he's talking about is is endurance, perseverance, trust. He's talking about faith. And enduring through persecution, which is kind of the direct context there. That verse 19 came right after Jesus was talking about all of the persecution that was going to happen, that we talked about happened in the book of Acts. Well, the persecution of Christianity didn't stop when the book of Acts ended. Yeah, and, you know, we see that again and again and, uh, throughout Paul's letters and Peter's letters and John's letter. You know, we see that throughout the New Testament, that as Christians, we are going to endure persecution. Now, I think more and more, we in America are understanding a little more of what that word persecution means because for a long time um, uh, American Christians um, didn't endure that as much, but it's it's coming more. You know, our lives aren't necessarily in danger all the time because we're Christians, but we are starting to deal with much more... Um, backlash and and um disrespect and, and all all kinds of, of of persecution i just saw a clip this week uh, if any of you watching are nfl fans you'll recognize the name cj stroud uh, quarterback yeah. rookie quarterback of the texans and he's he's led him to the playoffs and got a playoff win and throughout the whole season even before they were in the playoffs every interview he does at the end of the game because they always interview the star quarterback before he said, you know, the reporter will ask him a question about the game. And before he even addresses the question, he will always start by saying, you know, I want to give all glory to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ, because without him, I wouldn't be here. And he, he goes on this whole thing. Well, um, you can get it from like the television recording of the end of the game where you see that whole interview and he does that. NBC, the, the TV channel, the news, was replaying this interview days after the game and they completely just cut out the whole first half of the interview where CJ Stroud did this thing of giving glory to God and talking about his savior, Jesus Christ. NBC just totally snipped that whole front half of the interview off and it would only play the second half of his interview. So that's what, that's one example of the censorship, at least part of the persecution that we see today, which is nothing compared to what they had to deal with in the book of Acts, but still is a form of persecution, just just to kind of show that it is happening some today in America. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the push is, the thing that we can learn is we need to have endurance and trust and perseverance through this persecution, and as it gets worse, even to the point of death, we need to have endurance in what Jesus promises. Um, you know, he promised the apostles here, but there are promises, you know, the last the the last thing, one of the last things he said is, is I am with, I am with you always. Um, you know, and throughout the New Testament, we see the God, the, uh, like the apostles talk about perseverance and how through that we will gain life. We will claim the the gift um that's been promised us so i want to encourage you all you know you may not be dealing with it every day or you may be dealing with some kind of persecution every day but push through hold true to the word of god hold true to the faith which as paul says you have um you know, he always, as he's writing his letters, always talks about the common faith that that they've come to know through through his sharing of the gospel. Hold fast to that. Have endurance. Trust in God and His provision, as he, as we talked about at the very beginning of the chapter. Revelation two ten. Jesus has given a message to the church in is it Smyrna? 
Am I saying that right? I think you're close, if not. And um, he's, he tells them in Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So, Jesus' message to the church in Revelation, and through the rest of the New Testament, we see his message to the church today is that we need to be willing to persevere through suffering, through persecution, all the way to the point of death. Because, as Jesus says throughout his ministry, do not fear the one who can just kill your body. Fear the one who can, who can kill and cast your soul into hell. The world can persecute us for our faith. They can belittle us. They can censor us. They can threaten to kill us. But there's something they can never threaten to take away or to harm, and that is our, our salvation and our hope in heaven, which outweighs any kind of persecution they could throw at us. And if you're not quite sure what it means to endure, you know, trust is a big part of it, trusting in God and his provision. But also on top of that, you think to Paul, this is probably one of the most commonly talked about um, things on on perseverance or endurance, is Paul says, I've ran, I've ran the race. I've fought the good fight. That means proclaiming and defending the message and the mission of the gospel. So trust in God and his provision and proclaim and defend the message and the mission of the gospel. That is our duty, our task, our purpose, our life as Christians. Um, so what else can we learn from this? Um, well, as Jesus kind of wraps up this destruction talk, he, he picks up in verse 34, he says, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down or dis or dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day, and that day will uh, not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, to end all of this talk about these outward signs that are going to take place, Jesus then switches to concern um, to concern for the inward moral heart condition of the people, of his people. And this really is what we should focus on the most from this. <coughs> Excuse me, I had something in my throat. Um, this is what we should focus on the most. This is the purpose Jesus tied to to the very end of all this. So, you know, when we think about, you know, we try and focus this podcast on bearing fruit. So in the manner of bearing fruit, righteousness, uh, in the manner of our heart condition, personal holiness is essential. Too often, I think personal holiness is forsaken for for um, things that are that are made to be higher priority. Um, sometimes we we let it slide, but in one of the ways that we do this is in our own personal Christian walk. A lot of times, the question that we ask ourselves is. Okay, you know, when's the last time I sinned? Have I has I made it a couple days? Like, um, um, you know, am, you know, am I doing pretty good? Have I made a have I gone a few days without sinning? But that shouldn't be the question that we're asking. The question that we are at, that we should ask ourselves is: Are we living a holy life? And the way that we answer that question is we compare ourselves to Jesus. We compare ourselves to God. We are much better at 
striving to meet a standard than we are trying to keep from doing something. Um, right. Our bar is the holiness of Christ. And that is that is what our mindset should be. It should not be, you know, uh, you know, I've gone a couple days without sinning. I'm doing all right. No. Our bar should be Christ. Am I living a holy life in comparison to my Lord? The answer will always be no. But what that does for us is it sets our mind to pursue personal holiness. And, you know, personal holiness is is a huge part of, of bearing fruit. In fact, every every part of bearing fruit, the the worship of our God, the proclamation of the gospel in trying to make disciples, the the good deeds and kindness, the the um oh, I'm drawing a blank on our the fourth one. Um one second. I'll look it up. I'll find it real quick here. Oh, the the just the Christian character that we are trying to mimic uh, Jesus with, you know those those four things. All of those are part of personal holiness. If we're not doing those things, if we're missing the mark in any of those places, then we are missing the mark of what personal holiness is. We're missing the mark of what God is expecting of us in our lives. And I think the point we're we're making here. Um, it's not that holiness isn't repenting from sin. Repenting from sin and living a life freed from sin certainly is a part of holiness, but what we're saying is being holy and living a holy life goes farther than simply not sinning. Yes. But it is actively trying to be more like Christ. Absolutely. And so... In comparison to God, how are you living, thinking, doing, decision-making, treating God, and treating others? It's more than just not sinning. And so the idea of personal holiness is, is extremely undervalued, but really it makes or breaks the Christian. And here, Jesus is expressing that these people need to have a sense of personal holiness. They need to be sure that they are, they, they are striving to, to follow him in all ways through endurance of faith and um, through, as, Jesus, as Jacob said, through not sinning. And um, I don't know if we've done this before, but uh, I wanted to offer up a, a book on holiness. Um, it's called um, He Died to Make Men Holy. And you remember the name of the author? Uh, it's by no- Norman Bales. Norman Bales. N-O-R-M-A-N-B-A-L-E-S. Yeah. So, He Died to Make Men Holy. I've read, um, I haven't read all of it, I'll admit that. I've, I've read a, a chunk of it. And um, it is an excellent book. Obviously, no replacement for the Bible, um, you know. But he 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 writes about the expectations that God has for us in our holiness, and um, how Christ's death is not just about not sinning; it's about holiness. It definitely would make a good devotional read if you as a part of your relationship with Christ and uh, spiritual disciplines, wanted to do a study on holiness, uh, definitely would recommend that to go alongside of, uh, not in replacement, but alongside of what the Bible teaches about holiness. Absolutely. So that is how we can take all of this judgment language, all of this stuff that doesn't necessarily you know, directly correlate with us, but we can still draw application from it. Um, the last thing I'll add, 
something that does directly impact us is the fact that all of this that Jesus prophesied was fulfilled at when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And that is just another confirmation that his word is true, that he was the Christ, that he is the Christ, and that um, um, we can trust in the words that he spoke. Um, so the, the, the last thing I'll say is I just want you all to notice again, and I, you know, I plan on pointing this out every time I can. Jesus is in his last week before his crucifixion. And I mentioned this last week, but again and again and again, his whole life, he is about his mission all the way up until the day that he is crucified. We'll talk about this when we get there, but he's sitting before Pilate on trial, getting ready to be sent to die on the cross, and even then, he is preaching the message of the gospel. And right here at the end of this chapter, it says, Now during the day, in verse 37, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, and at at evening he would go out and spend the night at the mount uh, that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple and listen to him. He was teaching every day leading up to the final day, leading up to to his crucifixion. That certainly says a lot about his priorities and what he felt like was extremely important to spend his last days on earth doing. Absolutely. And we need to make sure that our priorities line up with Christ in in manners of personal holiness, in manners of endurance and perseverance and faith. So I hope you all have been encouraged by this today. Jacob, again, thank you for that, the breakdown of that passage. That was good. I hope I made it clear. <laughs> I think so. You got anything else? Now that'll do. All right. Go bear fruit and so prove to be one of his disciples. <laughs>